Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands of Eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our human relationships to the rest of nature. We talk about ecology, conservation, forestry, and many interconnected issues. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Nothing presented here is intended as the final word. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground, where, as humans, we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to thriving forests and the well-being of all the incredible life we share this planet with. On a fine summer's day, I met Diane Obed to talk about decolonization, including its importance in environmental movements. I know that a lot of us are wanting to better support Indigenous people and come to terms with what our roles are as we learn more and contemplate our relationship to the lands, the First Peoples, and embark on the long journey of how to live respectfully within Mi'kma'ki and contribute to regeneration and healing. Diane Obed is an Anuk woman mixed with white settler ancestry. She is a mother, writer, and community member, originally from Hopedale, Nanatsiavit, Labrador, currently living, studying, and working in Mi'kma'ki, Nova Scotia. She is currently enrolled in the Educational Foundation's PhD program at Mount St. Vincent University, exploring decolonization and contemplative land-based studies. Diane and I met in Sebeganegadi, at a place with the English name of Laurie Park, on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Mi'kmaq people. It was a beautiful, sunny Sunday afternoon, and other people were also out enjoying the day. I think you will really appreciate Diane's thoughtful words and wisdom, and also, though it will likely be difficult to hear, her sharing of a very personal experience with colonization. Despite the difficult subject matter, Diane offers a generous spirit and gentleness. I believe we can find hope and understanding by delving into these topics together of the continued effects of colonization, of what decolonization means, and ideas of how we can contribute to a healthier and more whole world, individually and collectively. Well, maybe for the folks listening, maybe we can just describe where we are. Mm-hmm. So hello, Diane. Thank you for meeting me here today. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. And so you suggested this beautiful park called Laurie Park mm-hmm. that's uh, that's special to you and just beautiful. So we just walked in a little bit and you took me to this spot. Yes, so the Mi'kmaq name is Kukumihinash and it means uh, Grandmother Rock. So there's a rock kind of emerging from the ground which is covered in pine needles and there's some blueberry bushes nearby and spruce trees and pine trees and we're overlooking looking down on this lake there's a cliff yeah Yeah. and then with these hills in the background Mm. so one I just wanted to share a practice that I've been trying to do um, Mm -hmm. and that is that I've been trying to learn some of the uh, tree names in in Mi'kmaq language Mm. and I I just see one that I know here, <laughs> which is a uh, pine tree, which yeah. is guo. Guo? Guo. Guo. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I, I sometimes when I'm walking in the forest and if I can remember the name and I say it, I think maybe these 
trees remember hearing that language long ago if they're mm. old enough yeah or if any Mi'kmaq people have have said it recently but mm. anyway yeah so there's a breeze hopefully that's not gonna interfere too much with the sound um but yeah so i am uh, an inuk woman I'm currently a doctoral student at Mount St. Vincent University, um, and I am from Nanatsiavut, which means our beautiful lands in Inuktitut, which I'm learning, and the language hasn't been passed down to me. But I, I live now in Wachamiach, which is where the fresh water flows, um, and that's it's very close to the Sabaganagadi River, uh, which is just about 15 kilometers from here. Um, and so the Sabaganagadi River and all of these places, I am just so grateful to, to be living near these areas that have been cared for and protected by the, the generations of Mi'kmaq who have been here for thousands of years. And so this, this place, like you said, learning the language and learning about the first peoples who were here really helps us to have a, a deeper sense of the, the kind of consciousness that that is here and that has been here for a long, long time. Um, yeah, I'd like to share a little bit about more about my history and my territory. So I was raised in the the northern region of Nanatsiavut. I was born uh, within Inuit family on my maternal side. And then uh, my paternal grandparents were both Inuit and English settler descent. Um, my paternal grandmother was the second or third generation um, settler living in Labrador. And so living in that area uh, as a child, you know, it's a fairly remote northern rural territory, accessible only kind of by small boat and plane. Wow. Um, and also some travel by skidoo when the ocean ice is formed. So this means that a lot of our communities... Um, were and are living on the land in culturally rich ways there. Um, and I grew up in that, in that practice of hunting and fishing, um, for subsistence, hunting seals, fishing salmon and char. I also grew up hunting caribou, but now for the past 10 years, there's a ban on the caribou hunt due to the mass depopulation, mm. um, which is just a, a great loss to our cultural knowledge system and that relationship with that that food staple. Um, and so I lived that way for about 10 years with my family living on the land. Um, but due to, you know, colonial centralization policies, um, enforced in the province of, of Newfoundland and Labrador, the policies displaced my parents, um, and forcibly moved them from northern regions to a more southern region so that they could have access to, um, school and healthcare and other services. Um, but this relocation really negatively impacted my family's stability and ability to be able to take care of themselves and to be healthy. And so their livelihoods weren't connected as well to their new where they were relocated. Mm -hmm. um, and so my also my grandmother attended residential school in that province. And so all of these very rapid changes um, affected my family's ability to take care of me. So 
at a young age, I was removed from my family's care and placed into to foster families. Um, and so that is a just a small example of how, you know, colonization affected me in my life of displacement from my homeland, from my family who spoke the language, who had um, practiced our cultural ways of, of being and moved into um, into white foster homes, right? And so this is a very kind of personal way, uh, a micro level way of how colonization has affected me and intergenerationally my my parents and now my, my own children. Um, and so there's a deep felt sense of loss of family, of language, of connection to homeland. I'm going to interject here. When we hear this part of Diane's story, it is impossible not to feel some strong emotions, maybe extreme sadness, disbelief, anger. It is hard to believe these kind of horrific things happened, and that similar harms still occur today. Hopefully we can use these reactions as a reminder to really consider what we each can do in the pursuit of healing and decolonization. Diane's experience was part of the broader, wide-scale policies of removing Indigenous children from their homes between the 1950s and the 1980s. This is known as the 60s scoop. And according to Wikipedia, it is estimated that in Canada, 20,000 Indigenous children were taken from their families and fostered or adopted out primarily to white middle-class families during that time. This overrepresentation of Indigenous children in the foster care system continues today. According to the 2016 Canadian Census, 52.2% of children in foster care are Indigenous, but account for only 7.7% of the total child population. This is just one example of continued colonization, and that clearly there is a lot of work yet to be done towards justice and reconciliation. And so that happened, you know, about 30 years ago, um, and it almost kind of feels like a, a lifetime ago now, but that that those memories of both being on the land um, and being connected ancestrally to to those lands and to my people um, is still there. Is still very much a part of me, and is why I now study sort of land based knowledge from indigenous perspectives. Um, and so now we're in this time of sort of resurgence and recovery and reclamation of our ways of knowing and being. So those, those memories are still very much within me and within um, our communities, those cultural and blood memories. Um, so yeah, that's why it's just important for me to be on this path now of, of decolonizing and trying to relearn um, our history and where we come from. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that. Uh, can I ask how you, um, what brought you to Mi'kma'ki? Yeah, I moved here right out of high school. My father was living here at the time. And so I moved here with him and I started, uh, the transition year program at Dalhousie shortly after and just kind of continued my education since then. I'm still in school 20 years later. And you're working on your PhD now. Yeah. 
Wow. And that must be an interesting thing. Maybe that will come up later in, in the conversation, but how to reconcile these colonial education systems with the um, indigenous ways of education. Yeah. Um, could we start off with a very big question of what is decolonization and why is it important in work around the environment? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to talk about that. Um, just sort of reconnecting to my own life story of how I began that journey from the time that, you know, colonization started in a way, well, before I was born, but in my life, the act of colonization in my life was me being removed from my from my lands, from my territory, from my family. Like that is a just sort of a concrete example of what colonization is. And so I think, yeah, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, in the work that I do as a, as a student, um, what I know wouldn't be possible without uh, all of the work of the many, many scholars who engage in sort of decolonial work. So I'm going to be referencing a lot of um, scholars who have written books, who have, you know, their websites. Um, and so I'm going to share with you a lot of some of the resources that I'm sharing today, just so that people can continue their learning if they're interested. So for example, one of the main um, websites that I'll be citing today is called indigenousclimateaction.com, um, an indigenous-led climate justice organization. And so there's a a recently written article on a beginner's guide to decolonization. And so I'll just quote a little bit. It says that today, you know, there are many leaders and organizers from settler organizations, and they're using this word decolonization, right, when they might actually be referring to equity, diversity, and inclusion. But, but decolonization is so much more than that. Um, and so through the interpretations of many Indigenous scholars and writers and thinkers on the topic, really it means undoing colonial impacts. Um, it means resistance and liberation. Um, it means dreaming. It means restitution. And I think for me at the core of it is, is land back, is repairing and land repatriation. Um, and restitution. Um, and that can look like different things. Um, it, it can look like different ways of returning land. But, but I like to unpack this a little bit more. And really, it, it also means beginning to recognize that that colonization exists. The word decolonization, right? So what are we hmm. sort of exploring it? I think one of the core aspects of, of colonization is, is the denial of it. And so I, I like to explore some of the key characteristics of colonization so that we can better understand then, well, what are we decolonizing from? Mm -hmm, that would be helpful. Yeah. So again, in drawing on some of the, the scholars and writers, um, there's a couple of really great settler authors of a book called uh, Healing Haunted Histories. Um, they have a website as well. Uh, so it's Elaine Enns and Ched Myers. And so they, they explain that, you know, colonization is the longest and oldest injustice in this territory in North America. And 
that it means that Canada as a country exists on the premise of indigenous dispossession of their lands, of their cultural practices, of their languages, of their knowledges, while also, you know, representing itself as benevolent, you know, um, as innocent, um, where settler colonialism is, is also, you know, a dis- another distinct word from colonization, but it, it just means where settlers seek to replace the original inhabitants of the lands. And so some of the, the key characteristics of it, the way that I see it now um, in education and even in the environmental movement is sort of the dominant social narrative and discourse of exclusion and erasure of sort of indigenous presence in in the country, in um, the development of how this country came to be. Um, and so, for example, in the environmental movement, you know, indigenous peoples have witnessed, uh, Leanne Simpson says, have witnessed the continued ecological collapse um, since the early days of occupation. And so she explains that, you know, climate change is a much larger series of ecological catastrophes caused by colonialism, which is an accumulation-based society. So that's one of the key characteristics is exclusion and erasure and that we see in our school systems and in our our laws and in our policies and in our um, structures. And we just don't see ourselves represented in the school system. We're just watching a little bird. I don't know what kind of bird that is. A tiny like little a, bird hopping along. <laughs> it looks like a dark-eyed junco. And oh. I only know that because I have a bird app oh, <laughs> that identifies birds. That's yeah. good. That works. <laughs> yeah. It's a cute little sparrow-type gray mm-hmm. bird. Um, yeah, and so one of the other sort of characteristics of, of colonization is that a lot of people think it's something of the past that, you know, indigenous peoples are conquered and we need to move on type mm-hmm. thing. Um, but it's ongoing all the time. Right. And part of it, again, through the historical and existing um, apparatuses of colonialism is to just to continue to try to eliminate and disappear indigenous peoples. Um, including, as I mentioned, how we contributed to the development of Canada through the through the signing of treaties. Um, so we are in the territory of the Peace and Friendship Treaties. And those treaties are really, again, we don't really learn about them. So that's a, just a clear example of how colonialism exists. But those treaties were clear examples of how Indigenous nations are sovereign nations, that we have our own governance systems and lawmaking systems and and settlers early settlers negotiating and signing with indigenous peoples showed that they were recognized as sovereign nations but those treaties are broken right so again so that's a that's how colonialism works um and so it shows as well that indigenous peoples as sovereign nations um, had laws that existed before Europeans arrived, you know, that were in, um, in alignment with, with nature, 
Um, so I just want to highlight the, the Peace and Friendship Treaty because the Mi'kmaq continue to work to try to exercise their treaty rights to hunt and fish today. Um, but due to colonial laws and attitudes, the treaties are broken um, and they are, there's so much contention and tension around the Mi'kmaq being able to have a right to a moderate livelihood. And so Canada owns 99% of the lands due to colonization. Yeah. And whereas 400 years ago, Indigenous peoples were the sole occupants of these lands. Um, however, they only now live on 0.2% of the lands. Yeah. And so a lot of what drives me in my doctoral work is the is the belief that it is in part because of our dispossession from our lands that we are now living in this phase of late stage capitalism, which is the major driver in our ecological crisis. So that is sort of what, what drives my work and interest in, in decolonization. But, but going back to the key characteristics, um, another one is just the violation of those relationships of the treaties, so human-to-human -human relationship, but also the violation of more-than-human relationship. Um, being cut off and separate from the land, my own personal sort of separation from the land, um, the attempt, that is, you know, I am colonized. I don't speak my language. I, yeah, just very much feel the separation from my heart and my spirit. Um, and part of my decolonizing journey has been to heal from that, to heal that mind, heart, body split. Mm. Um, so I'm going to name just two more thing, key characteristics and let you <laughs> pop in and ask a question again. But um, another characteristic I think for me is, is sort of the offloading of responsibility uh, onto indigenous people to, to continue to educate about the history, um, but also to do the decolonial work. It is our work to reclaim our traditions and our languages and practices. Um, but there's, there's a lot of work for, for non-Indigenous peoples to do in disrupting sort of the silence around colonization. Yeah, so I just wanted to share this really good example of um, a book that was written about an Inuit elder. And it was written that the elder sort of came down to the south from, from Inuit Nunungat, the territory of Inuit homeland. He visited, I think, a place in Ontario somewhere here and reflected during his visit that the lands he visited used to have these great riches that were stripped away from it and replaced by that, which is not self-sustaining um, and requires a lot of maintenance now. And so this is his words. He explained that like this very land, he witnessed his children and grandchildren had been stripped of their inumeric, their original way, and that the education they got in its place makes them very dependent and requires a lot of tending to. So essentially what has happened to the lands stripped of its abundance its diversity is also what what's happened to indigenous peoples of these lands and so as i mentioned we're we're working to 
reclaim our our practices and our land-based ways of knowing and being. And I think that was really interesting, that, that interlink mm-hmm. between the indigenous peoples of the land and the land. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a researcher, Dr. Louisa Maffi. She coined a term called biocultural diversity, um, which reflects the diversity of life in nature and culture. And she says that cultural diversity loss is biodiversity loss because she has she's shown that colonization seeks to create a monoculture mm-hmm. of it, you know, imperialism through through whiteness, you know, and that results in language loss, which makes ecosystems less resilient. Um, so the homogenization of language into English creates biodiversity loss, making us more vulnerable. So she sees the connection between cultural linguistic loss mm. and biodiversity loss. Wow. Yeah, I, I think there's such a clear connection there because we're more resilient with diversity, you know. And that's why I think it's so important to to support Indigenous peoples' reclamation of, of their language. Mm-hmm. So for all the environmentalists out there who really care about nature and climate crises and biodiversity loss and all these other things Mm. and and i mean i think a lot of those people also care about trying to figure out what decolonization means and how to support indigenous people and um but i think also maybe sometimes people think or some people think that it's you know we're in such a crisis now environmentally that that's where we need to focus and not seeing these linkages and and how not just for the sake of, you know, what's fair and just to the people themselves, but that that is interconnected with the other issues that people are coming to see are so important. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, no, I think that all of the great work in the environmental movement is important. It's just ensuring that it doesn't become another colonial exercise of, of continuing to emplace belonging to a particular group of people uh, but that it's it's diverse and that that there's an acknowledgement that indigenous dispossession is really harm has been harmful and and to support us to reconnect and to share our our knowledges is really is really key and so because as this this researcher said we're more resilient when there's diversity Mm-hmm. in both our humanity and bio culturally and biologically and ecologically and so so there's sort of political and and educational and structural kinds of decolonization but it's also very personal as well in our own lives and that's sort of the key area that I look at with decolonization because it's it's something that's within our own agency that we can we can do for ourselves. And and are you talking now about all people can do that for themselves? Yeah, they can begin to start that journey. And I will just say that it is a lifelong journey. Mm. Um that it's not sort of a quick and easy sort of answer that we might want that we cannot unravel something that has been happening for 400 years in these lands. 
overnight that it will take time and and so it's very process oriented um, meaning that direction is emphasized over destination Hmm. that part of colonial thinking is to want to urgently urgently arrive at a place like you know so it's just kind of becoming conscious and aware of the the different ways that we've been conditioned and taught. Yeah. One of the things that struck me when, um, while you were leading that decolonization learning journey um, through the How We Thrive Landwater Spirit Network for a few weeks, which we all really appreciated and got a lot out of, I think, um, I certainly did. And one of the things that I actually like to revisit, so it was a a workbook that we were working on, um, which I'll I'll link to in the show notes as as well. And I, yeah, and I think I need to, well, it's an ongoing lifelong journey, certainly, but that particular workbook and, and the way you held the space and facilitated it, I felt really powerful. And like, I need to reread parts of that workbook, probably like, you know, on a weekly basis or something, even because I felt like I learned so much and kind of grasped so much in a even in a I mean in a non-intellectual way but then Mm. it's just somehow easy to for like forget to like I can't seem to hold on to some of these things or know how to integrate them into my life but um, that what you were just saying was reminding me yeah that that working on decolonizing oneself involves intellectual effective and relational work and mm-hmm. I feel like a real tendency um, for the dominant culture is to like intellectualize everything and think I've read it and now I know it. But I was thinking a lot about this, yeah, the effectual part, um, like how how I guess things are. You feel it in your body and how you mm-hmm. that 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 is also something that we need to learn to practice. Uh, yes, I love that you're bringing this into the the space and the conversation because. We are on the land right now where we are. And part of my colonization of being disconnected from the land disconnected me from my body. And so as I began sort of simultaneously returning to land in an intentional, heartful, ceremonial way, I started just reconnecting with my body as well. Mm. And there's so much intelligence there like we are the land we we are of the land and so i think that's one of the ways that the land communicates with us is through our body but raising this point of hyper intellectualization and hyper rationality um, it is very much a part of sort of white supremacy colonial culture is to have a mask or is is to be afraid to be vulnerable um, and so I'm going to share a little bit from another beautiful podcast um, who I'm following their work now is Kyra Jewelingo. And so she, I'm really just drawn to spiritual teachers who explore the intersections of spirituality and racialized healing and ecology. And so she says that it's really a big part of colonial and settler culture is to not be able to sit with any sort of discomfort. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, 
Yeah, we don't want to feel. So if we could just sort of settle into our bodies right now and feel and be with what's here and name what we're feeling in our bodies mm-hmm. and continually do that as a practice, I think that is part of part of the work. Mm. Um, and so it is very powerful to do that, you know, how we're feeling in our, in our belly, how we're feeling in our shoulders mm-hmm. and in our head, um, being able to name what's here is really, really important because having these conversations is, is hard. There's going to be fear. There's going to be defenses and all of that. And I think that's really okay to have compassion for all that comes up and be with what arises when we have these kinds of conversations. That's just become so important to me and not just sort of transmitting factual knowledge, but being with people mm. in a in that affective way, emotional, social, relational way. Oh, that's so... It's part of our waking up. That's part of the decolonizing I think you were you already described this, but I'm just I'm I'm hearing it or seeing it in a, a different way um, now. Like I just kind of had this glimpse into if if you and I and other humans can't connect and relate and feel comfortable and share vulnerability with one another, then we can never really feel like we belong to the world. Like so, that is directly related to feeling connected to the land and wanting to protect the land too, how we relate to each other and ourselves. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the past few years, I've been exploring my own settler ancestry and just coming more to terms with that as well and trying to understand my own mixedness and what that means in terms of both being harmed by colonization, but also benefiting from it. And what I mean by benefiting is just sort of on the social mobility, you know, moving along in my life and being at this level of education and having access to certain things that some of my other family members might not have access to. And so I've just been learning that, that shaming or trying to make somebody else as another other to be seen as bad. That's, that's never the goal. I think I'm learning just sort of a lot of compassion on my own healing journey, doing a lot of um, alchemizing different emotions, not judging what comes up, Mm. but also not avoiding the pain and discomfort of what, what happens when, uh, when we see continued racism and denial of of treaty rights and inequities still being able to feel like something can be done about it doing my own personal work but but learning as well what decolonization is right it's both personal and political and i and i think i want to be clear that on a, a political level at its core decolonization as i mentioned is about repatriating land back to Mi'kmaq people and and I know that can kind of maybe strike fear into people but it 
it can look like different things to different people. But recognizing that we belong here as well, and part of the trauma of being racialized is this feeling of not belonging. Um, and, and understanding that when you support Mi'kmaq and Indigenous peoples, we are doing what Elder Albert Marshall said, which is maintaining the ecological integrity of the of the area and preserving the the local knowledge. And so, yeah, the the land back it means different things. So, a large part of it is allowing Indigenous people to to have the ability to make decisions about for the lands and waters. It means um, that restoration of jurisdiction of being able to make decisions. Um, and that could look like co-management of parks, of mm. resources, of projects. Um, it also means the recognition of the, the treaty rights, the, the roles and responsibilities in those treaties. Um, and it can also be understood in spiritual and cultural terms as well. Mm. Indigenous people want to have the right to to practice ceremony and to be connected to the land in spiritual ways as well. At this point, I mentioned to Diane that I was looking forward to talking with Mi'kmaq people in future Shared Ground episodes, and that I often think about the mismanagement of so-called crown lands. I also told her that I think a lot of us who are not Mi'kmaq experience confusion and discomfort about what our roles are, that we want to support and I guess be part of co-creating a healthier planet. But we know a lot of things are not ours to lead. We want to be effective and useful, and certainly not interfere in unhelpful ways. That sometimes this uncertainty can even lead to inaction. Yeah, it's a lot. It begins with the relationship. I'm, I'm really glad just to hear that you are going to be speaking with Mi'kmaq folks and that's really important because they have generations long knowledge of being their families and their people here um, whose ancestors bones are buried here and who just bring so much wisdom um, but yeah you know in this time of, of reconciliation and just starting with the relationship is really is really key and I think it's it's just sort of acknowledging where we are if we're feeling frustrated overwhelmed you know we're living in such uncertain times i've just been listening to a lot of people writers who who help to guide us through uncertain times and there's there's so much wisdom in in like buddhist practice and in spiritual traditions indigenous wisdom all of these places um especially right now, is so needed. Uh, there's just so much unknown about our future mm -hmm. as humanity, and so many of us are feeling it and, and wondering how to navigate it and walk through it. And just from what I've been learning is to continually have a spiritual practice, to continually be guided by something larger than ourselves, um, to be grounded in our own sort of personal practices. I listen to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of books by Thich Nhat Hanh, 
and just listening to them it's like yeah we think we have so much more control than we really do mm. and it's just it is yeah acknowledge the fear acknowledge the uncertainty acknowledge the frustration be with it and ask it for its teachings mm. you know that's really a lot of what i've been been learning and in relationship with indigenous people we're we've already faced you know our own kind of apocalypse and through colonization and we're healing from that and we're still recovering from that and so it's just being gentle and patient in recognizing sort of the trauma that we hold that we're still healing from and acknowledging just the burdens that we're already living with and that that we're being called forward now that there is so much movement being made done that we can feel you know so it is slow in terms of our increasing our visibility in spaces but it's happening mm. i feel it yeah. yeah continually grounding on the land this is just what, what i keep coming back to, back to. Uh -huh. very simple very simple daily things so so when you were saying before it's a cultural tendency to i mean i'm talking about again about the dominant culture the tendency to come across difficult emotionally hard things and not deal with it like just turn away and and did i hear you say some of the ways you manage to be gentle and let yourself feel discomfort and pain is through both grounding within the rest of nature and also through the spiritual practices that you're that you find yeah. wisdom and comfort in yeah returning to indigenous teachings teachings of my own people um and having compassion i think that's really important because sometimes people feel the anger and the hatred as a way to uh, avoid the vulnerability of what's potentially underneath that. And this is in terms of why people project racism or other harmful behaviors toward others. I'm just, I'm learning that people also that sometimes we substitute dominance for safety. We think that that's what safety is, mm, is to be dominant. I see. We think that to be safe is to, yeah is to avoid but and it's i've done that for a very long time it's very overwhelming to sit with strong emotions it's very difficult so i have compassion and, and acknowledge that there's a wisdom there potentially um yeah and i and i think being aware yeah that there are practices that one can develop from wisdom traditions yeah, the wisdom of the, the people of this land and the land itself, because if you're not, if you don't have kind of those skills or practices and you feel, I, I was just kind of making a connection in my mind to like when you feel, because again, intellectually, I can agree, of course, we need mm -hmm. to move through these feelings and figure out what to do with them and what we can do to align our values with our actions and such but when you're really feeling like depressed or um, mm. upset or any any strong emotion it is it is very hard not to find a way to turn away from it it's almost like yeah. like when you're very hungry and you just don't eat you know it's kind of a similar yeah like 
Yeah. Yeah. We have coping strategies to to manage the hard places. Um, and a lot of what I've been doing, as I mentioned, is just sort of the land really brought me into more of a deeper spirituality and meditative practice. And it is a practice and it's not easy. It is it is difficult um, and it is lifelong. And without, you know, trying to sound trite and kind of oversimplify it, there is so much healing that the land offers us, not just sort of, it's, it's a balance the, that we can feel the fear of what, what's happening with the planet. I've been getting a lot into the emotion, emotional aspects and wanting to learn that side of the climate crisis is how do we feel our way through right um and the podcast that i've been listening a lot to again which i'm still integrating is the way out is in the way out is in and that's just very deep teaching from zen master Thich Nhat han and his his followers who talk about that on on the podcast but yeah, these are things that I'm I'm integrating as well because I'm learning them on an intellectual level, but it takes time for the for the knowledge to become embodied and integrated and become a way of life. Mm-hmm. You know, a way of being. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I could ask you um f- from your own unique perspective well, you, you've talked about it a bit when we when we talked on the phone, but I guess how how to empower the Mi'kmaq people whose land this is, and to offer respect and to be accountable. Um, kind of what ideas or suggestions would you offer to you know the people in this part of in Mi'kmaq or anywhere? But I'm thinking of the uh, forest protection movements in in Nova Scotia and elsewhere right now, and and folks that really are are trying to protect the land and and probably care about. Mi'kmaq people and and all the injustice there as well is there anything you would offer people engaging in kind of current environmental movements Mm. that that's something that i'm working on learning more about um i think it's recognizing that and and i think people know are becoming more to to know and learn about is that these lands um they're not neutral sites that they're not innocent that they're not empty that they weren't empty that there were rich and are rich nations people living here and who are protecting the land who have been for thousands of years and and doing our own work in that process of of learning the history of the lands the people of the lands including yeah, learning from the authors of Healing Haunted Histories. So they ask and invite folks to learn about their own immigrant ancestors and how how they came to be here, their, their histories, and where we live now. Just beginning to ask ourselves simple questions of uh, who lived here three or four hundred years ago? What happened? How did it happen that our ancestors, our immigrant ancestors came to be here. How did my own people come to this place? And so just learning those basic pieces of our own history will give us a deeper 
sense of how to support, like knowing ourselves mm-hmm. will help us in, in restorative solidarity with Indigenous people. And also yeah, just, just working through one's own emotional, spiritual challenges, um, doing our own, our own healing work, being in our bodies as much as we can, mm-hmm. being with what's here. I really appreciated when we first arrived to this place and when we walked up and then you offered some energy movements. Yeah. Yeah, just just finding ways to help ourselves be be grounded and how even just spending a few minutes of deep breathing and Mm. you offered a a prayer and some tobacco to the rock and I think, um, you know, all of those things time-wise didn't you know, didn't take very much time, but I think really set set the ground for mm. our conversation. And um, yeah, we appreciated that. Yeah, it's so important. I thank you for, for joining me here and for participating in that process. And also I know I was thinking of when we spoke last fall, you were holding the question about how do we come into good ethical relationships with the land? Yeah, it's hard because I I just have my own sort of personal journey of how I'm navigating that that question of like how I'm connecting in ways that I can. Um, but it's very unique to everybody. And, and I, I feel like I'm wanting to just be conscious and like less preachy about for for other people about how they can do that okay um but it's it's a it's an edgy like learning thing for me where it's like it might not be my role to tell others about how they can connect ethically with the land and and really i think it was just it would just be like how how do you feel that you can explore that question for yourself and how does that question sit and feel within oneself? It it looks very different for everybody. And I think it's just really a matter of like a deep inner exploration and tuning in to what you're able to tap into and offer yeah, that's, thank you. That's reminding me that questions are often more important than answers. Was it you that said, that? oh, no. you said something, yeah, you said something, yes, you did say that in another, in the phone call, and, and I really liked, I loved it. Okay. <laughs> but it was something along those lines, yeah, that, yeah, we don't always have the answers, and, and that's something that, and this is part of my own, I think, decolonizing process, is that... I am learning to unhook from the dominant ways of being. I'm still learning, and that's okay. Right. Oh, yes, and that we have so much. Maybe this is what we were talking about over the phone, um, that just to try to encourage all of us to share our questions with one another and also whatever our personal wisdom is for ourselves because um, yeah. waiting for experts to for the answers takes away from what we what we know or what we can learn from one another and through being um connecting with others in a heartfelt way 
yeah. a lot can come from that that we wouldn't even know what we're looking for necessarily or wouldn't even know. That's it. Yeah, that's exactly it. Is part of our conditioning is we we expect and wait for an outside authority or, um, like you said, expert to tell us what we need to do when how can we turn that on its head and, and really tune inward mm. with our own inner knowing? And yeah, that's, that's something really that I'm deeply exploring now mm. is trusting that, that inner knowing of what I can bring, what I can offer. Huh. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd really like to, to talk about or say? No, I think just really, where possible, learn the original place names, where where we are located. Know that the overlaying of the map of the names, the existing names are often colonial, and it, and it matters to try to learn the original names and the, like you said, the language, trying to understand how the, the Mi'kmaq people related with their lands through their language and how their languages arose from the lands. Um, so where possible, learn the original place names. And for that, there's a Mi'kmaq digital place names app. Um, there's a website we'll leave as a resource. And if you're not in Mi'kmaqi, there's another website, native-land.ca. And I recommend other resources. The learning is just, is just beginning. There's a land back report, which is what I cited for what we talked about today. The explorers a lot of the history about indigenous settler relations with land. So yeah, so there's there's social things that we can do and there's there's very personal things that we can begin to explore for ourselves. So and I guess there are so many resources and there's so many different ways of I mean maybe part of it is that a lot of this is really you know overwhelming and not and people you know we don't know where to start sometimes or we start a little bit and then realize oh no there's so much more or i did that thing wrong or you know you can feel shame and guilt and all those things mm. but you're you're helping remind me that there is a, a there are a lot of different things that we can do little and and bigger mm. and that anything that we can think that is helpful along that path is important instead of feeling overwhelmed maybe that 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 could be an antidote to feeling overwhelmed maybe Mm. yeah take small every little small action matters it really does and with those those difficult emotions um try as best as you can to to be with them to name them to process them otherwise they will become suppressed and like the avoidance generates more potential trauma around raising our our literacy around colonialism and racialization so doing our best to name it and be with it and process it yeah i really like that because that even is no small thing really in a, in a way it is yeah. it's very simple and but yeah, when we've been trained to to not show certain emotions and not, you know, and, and protect ourselves, be strong and don't show vulnerability mm-hmm. and don't, um, you know, just put on your happy face and work through it or whatever all those expressions are. Um, mm-hmm. Just any time when we can practice alone or with other people. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to hearing the other guests on your your podcast. Well, thank you so much, Diane. I really appreciate your your time and your 
thoughtfulness and everything you shared. Yeah, thank you. Nakamit. Daima. Nakamit. I really think there is so much to digest in Diane's words and to also feel with our bodies. I hope that you have found this episode thought and heart-provoking, and I wish you well as you continue to navigate these challenging times. There are all sorts of great resources in the show notes to aid in the long and vital journey of decolonization and healing, so be sure to take a look. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. Check back in two weeks' time for the next episode, or click to follow or subscribe to this podcast. And just as we part ways, I wanted to send a birthday message out. Happy birthday on this day of August 2nd to my very best friend in the world. <laughs>